Live from the basement of Voodoo Sound, it's time to get your mojo working. I got my mojo working, but it just won't work on you. Take the next 40 odd minutes to get your hands on some tips and tools that will get you working at your best in both your business and your personal life. Hey everybody and welcome to Season 5 on the Mojo Radio Show. This is a little program designed to help you get your mojo working in and out of work. We're five seasons in. We have a wide array of very impressive guests coming up on the show this year. All walks of life. There's sport, business, social enterprise, science, you name it. If we think that there's somebody there with an opinion, a tip or a tool that we can steal to put into our own world to get our mojo working, then uh, we talk to them. And as always, behind the panel, our chief engineer, the man who makes the show sound good, Robbo, welcome to season five. We're into it. Yeah, I know. Huge, huh? There is one interview I'm looking forward to this year, and that's about voiceovers, Lofty Fulton. The big man of radio, Lofty Fulton. The big little man. (laughs) The voice of Rocktober. Yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm pumped for that one. That is going to be cracker. And uh, before we get into the show, a quick hello to the voice booth. We keep him there for a reason. <laughs> AP looking and sounding debonair as always, mate. Well, you know, Gary, I always do my best for you. And this week I'm wearing my favourite tweed three-piece suit, uh, smoking a pipe and wearing a deer stalker. I'll unlock the door for you this week, AP. Robbo, you don't have to worry about that because with the Deerstalker, I have the intellect of Sherlock Holmes. In other words, I can let myself out. Isn't that right, my dear Watson? Yes, it's lemon entry. <laughs> All right. So, let's get in the boat. The Mojo Radio Show. Sally Kelly grew up in Adelaide and became a world champion rower. Now, Sally and her rowing partner, Amber Halliday, set a world record together at the Athens Olympics in 2004. Now, these two were at the top of their game when in different accidents or events, they both ended up with serious brain injuries. It's an amazing story of how an Olympic athlete faced personal crisis and had to call upon everything they knew from the Olympics, their training, the mental strength, the way they approached their sport, and then apply that to their own world where they have a debilitating brain injury. It's, it's an amazing story with Sally. And we'll also talk about what Amber, her rowing partner, went through in her fight against this brain injury. Our good mate and former guest of the show, Glenn Capelli, was the one who introduced us to Sally. And we're delighted to have her with us today. Sally, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, Sally, just to put people in the picture, if, if somebody walks up to you today and says, what do you do? How do you like to reply? I'm on holidays. Yes. Yeah, stock standard. I'm a teacher. I'm on holidays. But I guess by day I teach. Um, and then by, by morning and night, I guess, sunrise and sunset, I'm zipping up and down the Brisbane River coaching those same schoolgirls. Um, and then on the side, I like to find some time to do some um, guest speaking um, and a few things like that. So it's quite a busy life, um, but I really enjoy what I do. So let's just rewind to put people in the picture. So today you teach, today you coach. In a previous chapter of your life, you were a world champion and you have been to, to a number of Olympics. Just take, give us a, a quick executive summary of your sporting career highlights to date? Yeah, my sporting career um, had a quite a different start, I guess. I guess I was sitting in school in an assembly, uh, must have been about year 11, and someone came up onto the stage and said, are you tall? 
are you 16 and would you like to go to the Olympic Games? Um, now, the Olympics were something I dreamt of. I was actually a cross-country runner and I loved my running. Um, but uh, I guess um, the whole concept was a talent ID program and they're going around to every school in Australia looking for tall, lanky school kids and wanting to turn them into Olympic champions in just four years for the sport of rowing. Um, so I'd never rowed before, never even seen a boat um, and it was quite amazing. You know, they had 400 kids come down to the Sports Institute, measured us up, um, arm span, height, interviewed our parents, had to do a vertical jump and an endurance and a power test on the bike. They narrowed those 400 down to 10 boys and 10 girls. Um, it was pretty exciting. I can remember our first meeting with the coach and the coach said, I've got five goals for you. And he said, first goal, learn how to row. Second, second goal, in your first year of rowing, get to the World Championships and win a medal, the World Juniors. Second year of rowing, get to the World Senior Championships. Third year of rowing, get to the World Senior Championships again. And fourth year, Olympic Games. Now, um, I mean, I thought I was set. You know, my friend and I, you know, we were in this together. We, um, we were good mates at school. Um, we thought our futures were set. We thought we'd um, finish off our year 12, move to the AIS, um, pick up our Olympic medals and retire on the back of a cereal box. <laughs> <laughs> As you did in the 90s, like Lisa Curry-Kenny. Yeah. <laughs> um, but obviously it wasn't that easy. Um, you know, it really wasn't that easy. We were training 11 times a week in uh, year 12. Um, and that group of 10 boys and 10 girls within a year dropped down to about three of us, just three girls out of the, the 20 of us that were selected. And it was incredibly intense. You know, it was twice a day, six days a week, um, before school, after school, all those sorts of things. Um, but I guess the most amazing thing was the life skills that I picked up in that very short period um, of balancing year 12 um, and rowing, you know, so many times a week. And those life skills I've sort of carried through today, which is great. You know, just learning how to prioritise, goal set, um, you know, just, you know, take take a risk and, and be right on the line, which was really great. So you went to several world championships and Olympics. What's what's the What were your results there, Sally? What happened at those champs? Yeah, uh, quite interesting. So I managed um, three Olympic Games, which was really exciting. Um, the first Olympics, I was in a, a heavyweight quad um, at the age of 21. I was the youngest on the team. Um, the second Olympics, I went for a lightweight double. And the uh, third Olympics lightweight double again. Every Olympics I went to, I always ended up in a fourth place, made the A final, ended up fourth. Um, so I was pretty disappointed by the end. The final Olympics, which is Athens 2004, we were we were set um, to stand on that podium. Um, unfortunately, I broke my rib just a few weeks prior. Um, and my rowing partner, she fell off her bike. So we had quite a difficult preparation. Mm. Um, however, we got the world record in the semi. Um, and uh, unfortunately, we didn't. We crossed the line in fourth after that in the final. So we came home with a world record, which was wonderful. But um, yeah, no medals, which was a real shame. Um, which today is still pretty hard to grasp. But um, yeah, I guess fourth place is something I'm getting used to at all my Olympic games. Sally, we spoke to a friend of yours, Drew Ginn, and we talked uh, yeah. about that moment where you have done four years of work. You are on the start line, and all that time, all that effort, all the training, all the sacrifice comes down to that exact moment when the gun goes. Yeah. When it's on the line like that and there's a couple of you in the boat, how did you 
or how did you guys bring yourself to the exact moment to perform when that gun went? Well, the situation that um, Amber, my rowing partner, and I were in, um, we had nothing to lose. Um, she'd been out of the boat for six weeks. I'd been out of the boat for six weeks. We'd both been training singles. Actually, our Olympic heat in Athens was the first time we had ro- raced together. The first time we'd ever raced was the Olympic Games. It was the most awful preparation so we had absolutely nothing to lose the conditions were about to be uh, they were so bad they're about to be disqualified so we had nothing to lose we hopped on the start line we knew we were probably going to be the last race of the day because the conditions were so bad but it was a rip-roaring tailwind and we knew we just had to row technically well and uh, we crossed the line with the world record so we just knew that anything was possible Um, but I guess the other Olympics where conditions are perfect preparation's great Probably like Drew said, I haven't heard Drew's interview. It's it's life or death out there. You've put so much in, and I've heard another interview with um, is it Johnny Stofko, who yeah. you also mm-hmm. uh, pre and uh, he interviewed a rower, Olympic um, American rower called Erin, and she uses the same words that I used before the race. You know, it is life and death. You start doing a lot of self talk about today is a good day to die. You know, I'm going to put my body on the line. You know, you've put everything on the line for the last four years. Um, you've dedicated everything possible, every hour, every waking hour has been dedicated to that Olympic dream and you sit on that start line and, uh, yeah, nothing is going to take away that dream from you. Yeah, it's quite a, a surreal moment. It's really interesting, Sally, and I haven't had this actual conversation before. If I spoke to Drew and he was fortunate enough to win some gold and he said when he's in the boat, he puts his hand in the water and he just feels the water. It's not hot, it's not cold, it's not anything, it's just the water. And he said that that sense brings him exactly the moment because you can't think about anything else when you're just concentrating on my hands in the water. And then Arnold Devane of the Sleep News said, when you're going to sleep at night, rather than go to sleep with a mind full of stuff going to war with your pillow, you grab your pillow, you cuddle it, you feel the sheets, you feel the fabric, you feel your jammies, you sink down into it. And she was very sensuous in bringing her senses to the moment. My query with you is, and we're going to talk about what happened after the Olympics, being a teacher, then what you went through. What occurs to me is you seem to be quite auditory in that the dialogue that goes through your mind seems to be the prevalent thing that helps you get through these moments and be in the moment. Because a number of things we'll talk about, seemingly what you said to yourself or your soundtrack in your mind brought you to that moment. Would that be fair if you thought about that? Yeah, look, I think it's natural. Everyone has doubts. And sitting on the start line of an Olympic final, the doubts that come through your head, and I guess um, in my category at the Olympic Games, I was in a lightweight double. Every athlete in that final is 57.5 kilograms. We have to weigh in. Um, Everyone has the same physiology. Everyone's the same height. Everyone's the same weight. It's who has the strongest mental ability that will cross the line first. And um, I've really come to put just as much training into the mental side as I have to the physical side um, and getting rid of those doubts. So on the start line, it had to be all positive, you know. And the only way that I found to do that in my, you know, 15, 20 years of rowing at that level was to actually keep it as simple as possible and only focus on the technical side and don't focus on anything else. So, you know, I even got to a point in the Olympic final and, um, you know, I think when I look back, I think it's quite crazy where I had 
um, six or actually eight little um, words stuck to the foot stretcher in my boat. You know, one was length, one was drive the legs, one was sit back. And they were one, I had to have one focus point for every 250 metres of the race, just so I never thought of anything but rowing well. Um, I knew my body could do the work and my engine could do the work, but just rowing absolutely perfectly well um, and sticking to a race plan and not letting anything else distract me was always the key for good racing for me. Um, and any time I got nervous I'd look straight down to that foot stretcher and you know get my mind back on um, the technical point that was I was focused on and even today you know with the schoolgirls that I coach you know it just works beautifully they have so many doubts that come into their head and we put on their foot stretcher eight little key things and every 250 meters they have one focus point and only one and their mind isn't allowed to look out of the boat their mind is only allowed to look straight ahead and focus on that one technical point so yeah, I've, I've done a lot of a lot of visualization, a lot of self talk, and as you said, Drew puts his hand into the water. Um, I I can feel the the breeze on my face. You know, I can feel the oar handle in my against my thumbs. I can feel that zoot suit cutting into my shoulder. You know, very very, um, I guess, in tune with what's happening and focusing only on what's needed. When you're in a boat with a partner like Amber. You really have to trust that other person completely because you you have to operate it as one. How do you build that unwavering, unflinching trust in a partner? I think it's about respect. Um, Amber was an amazing athlete. Um, I think she felt the same about me. Um, I remember being on the start line of that Olympic final and the weather was atrocious and we just were... We, I just mirrored her, absolutely mirrored her. And I think that's how we got the world record that day. And I remember looking at the other crews behind us and they were floundering, you know, just weren't able to match up. But, you know, Amber is an incredible athlete. Um, we used to do enormous amount of training. You know, we would not only do the training prescribed to us, but we'd always be doing an extra half marathon before training or an extra bike ride after training. We were always just going a little bit beyond um, just to ensure that we were, were the better crew on the start line. You've said that Amber was a person who fought for everything and right down to wanting the best boat, the best equipment, the best oars, the best hotel bed. Like Amber seems like a partner that you admired for the standards she held herself to. And then after you had finished your competitive race, the Olympics, Amber had a crash. Uh, and I remember you talking about the fact that when she was coming out of a coma, how in your mind or in your heart, you believed that she'd be okay because she'd fight for it because your comment was how you do something is how you do everything. Just talk us through that period of how you believe that that thinking would have helped Amber through that tough, tough time. Well, I think um, what makes a good athlete, you need to be selfish. You know, you need to only be able to focus on yourself and what you need to get your best results. And I think we all did that. Um, but I think the best athletes go to a, another level with that. And you have to. You know, this is, um, as I said, it, it sounds crazy. It is life and death. You know, you've put so much on the line. So you do need to fight for everything. Um, and when you transfer that skill, I mean, that is a challenge of retiring from rowing and moving into the everyday world. You can't have that selfish mentality. You have to actually be a little bit more of a team player in a, a standard work environment. And I've actually done some reading on um, those that have left the Defence Force or the military, you know, where you're, you're so driven and so goal-driven um, and then coming back into that real world where um, not everyone around you is that driven, not everyone around you is, um, I guess, putting their life on the line for their, their dream. Um, so that's, I guess, going back to talking about 
my rowing partner, Amber, and myself, you know, we were very driven and we had to be, um, but it was hard then to transition back into the real, into the real world when rowing was over. So not long after that, um, Sally, it was in September 2011 and you were simply standing in the shower and you said that you felt dizzy and had a tingling sensation and your left side started to shake. Your husband, John, calls the ambulance and suddenly you are required to put your Olympic thinking, your Olympic attitude into your own personal health. Just take us back to that moment. What, what was that like and what happened? Yeah, it was, um, it was seven years after the game. So, you know, I'd found my feet in my career. I, was, I felt like I was living the dream. Um, had a beautiful family, a lovely husband, a one-year-old child, and had just given birth to our second little boy called Jake. And, um, yeah, it was two weeks after the birth and I was in the shower in that beautiful phase of motherhood. Um, and I can just remember this tingling and I thought I was going to faint. So I sort of tried to turn the shower off. And then I saw my left side was um, thrashing wildly about. And I actually thought this was a stroke and I thought I was living through a stroke and I actually wondered if it was the end. Um, I called my husband to call an ambulance. Um, We lived on the school grounds um, at King's College. We're actually living in Auckland and uh, the ambulance had a bit of trouble finding us so he had to go out on his mountain bike and sort of direct the ambulance in and by the time the ambulance had come into the house or the paramedics had come in, I'd actually recovered. The thrashing had stopped so it was a seizure um, and I'd recovered and when the paramedics came in to throw me in the back of the ambulance and take me into the hospital. I was pretty adamant at that stage that I was fine. I didn't need to go to the hospital. Um, I had babies to look after and those sorts of things. But they won. They strapped me into the ambulance, took me into the hospital um, and, uh, yeah, just had a very long and lonely night under the fluorescent lights of ER, Um, you know, asking lots of neurological questions and doing lots of scans and things like who's the Prime Minister of New Zealand. We just moved to New Zealand, so that was a tough one for me. And then what's your... What's your name? And I'd just been married, so that was another tough one. So it probably took a bit longer because I was a little bit um, uncertain of a few things. But we went through and um, in the following morning they gave us the results and uh, it was a bit of a shock actually um, to hear what they found. Um, so they they stated that I had a seizure the day before and I was very fortunate. Um, and the scans showed that I had an AVM on my brain, which was an arterial venous malformation, something that you're born with, um, something that would bleed under huge pressure, hence the birth, um, and something that I would have to live with for the rest of my life unless I had it surgically removed. Um, so it was a really tough time for us. Um, they told me, There'd be no carrying my baby on my, my own. There'd be no bathing my baby. There'd be no being on my own um, just in case I had um, this fatal stroke that was coming um, in my lifetime. Um, so it was a bit of a time I went through, you know, why me? Started questioning, you know, I've looked after my body my whole life. Um, but it didn't last long. Um, I guess my husband and I knew that we had to be optimistic about this one um, and we had to do some research and find out you know, where to from here? Would it be surgery or would it be just uh, living a very sheltered life and managing this this brain um, AVM? So you opted for an operation and you said that you were on the operating table and you said to yourself, I was ready to win this race. Do you remember that time? Like, can you yeah. vividly take yourself yeah. back to that moment of being prepped for that? Yeah, absolutely. Look, um, it was a, a very challenging 
in time, when we found out we needed surgery, um, we were actually living in New Zealand. Um, we'd just gone there for two or three years uh, to work, um, just as an experience. Um, and the local surgeon said um, his fatality rate—they call it a fatality rate—of um, uh, you know of death, stroke, disability was about 10%. Um, so we did some research and we found some Australian doctors that had their fatality rate down to 1%. However, we couldn't afford to come back to Australia to do something like that. So we sort of rolled the dice with the 10%. However, just before the operation, I had to sign the, um, the declaration, I guess they call it, and it slipped up to 15%. So I felt, it, I was terrified going into that operation. I was really terrified. Um, so I can remember lying on the operating table and this um, lovely register braiding my hair while they shaved half of my head. Um, she braided one side just to keep some of my hair. Um, and I can remember gripping onto my oar handles, feeling that wind cross my face. I can remember feeling the zoot suit dig into my shoulder and I can just remember thinking, this is one race I'm going to win and I was going to put my devil horns on and fight this one. Um, and then I remember waking up on the, the hospital trolley. So, yeah, I was pretty pretty ready to go in and, and win this battle. I like that visual, putting on my devil's horns. Yeah, that's absolutely. Cool. That, that's rock and roll. Yeah. That's gangster. That's gangster. It's a bit akadaka. I wore those devil horns all through all through rehab. I wore those de- devil horns. Those uh, physios, doctors, and occupational therapists didn't know what hit them. <laughs> that's good. So you go through all that. And you come out the other end and you realise that you've actually suffered a stroke during the surgery and you can't even move a thumb. And with your good hand, you ring your good friend Amber. Now, Amber had been through a similar thing, obviously. So you rang Amber. That's correct. Tell me what was the first thing you said to Amber and how did Amber reply in order to help you through this period? Well, um, I guess... I mean, I was paralysed for quite some... I was paralysed on my left side for quite some time and um, I kept it really quiet. I just... I didn't tell anyone. You know, it's only my immediate family that knew because I I, realized, I didn't want this journey to end. I wanted to actually change my prognosis and get my 100% of my movement back again. So I didn't tell anyone, but I chose to... Um, once I knew Amber had had her accident off her bike and ended up in a coma, I chose to call her and we, we talked about... Um, it was really fantastic to compare stories, um, how she, she was actually a couple of months ahead of me in her rehab. So she had done a lot of reading on neuroplasticity, um, something I'd never heard of. Um, she gave me a few books and I downloaded them as audio books because I didn't have the ability to hold a book. Um, and I just listened and listened and there was some incredible research going on in the world of brain plasticity, neuroplasticity. Um, and it was fantastic. I really felt like there was a program, a training program, and I could get back on track. Um, and it was huge and it was fantastic to go and go and talk to these doctors and physios and OTs about where I wanted to go with my recovery and then try and compare their notes as to where they wanted to go. And neuroplasticity seven years ago wasn't used very often in hospitals. Um, one of the um, therapies that I read about on the internet, internet was called constraint-induced movement therapy, and it's where you tie your good side, well, you strap your good arm to your body, and you're forced to use your weak side or your paralysed side. And even though I couldn't move my paralysed side, it was just the neurons that were um, being activated. So I'd walk up to a door, or I guess wheelchair up to the door, and it was the neurons that were trying to activate the left side to undo that door. 
will rotate that door handle. So I did a lot of that CI therapy, strapping my good side. I was definitely advised against it by the doctors, physios and OTs saying it was too exhausting, too dangerous. Um, but that is what I put my recovery down to, you know, really intense CI therapy of strapping my good side to my body and, and being forced to use my my weak side or my paralysed side. Pretty brave to tell an ex-Olympian that it's something's too exhausting, I would have thought, wouldn't it? It'd be like, yeah, be like a red flag yeah. to a bull. <laughs> yeah, so I put up a photo up on my wall next to my hospital bed and I drew devil horns. So when the physios came through, they knew who they were dealing with because there was absolutely <laughs> no way my family were going to have... Um, a bag of potatoes as their mother because, um, yeah, having two little boys, one-year-old and one-week-old, I had no option but to um, get my movement back. Both you and Amber said that you need to get through those sorts of challenges physically and mentally. You need to call upon all the skills that you learnt as an Olympian. And when you have children, how are you using those skills today as a teacher, as a mum? You know, in the rowing we did a lot of self-talk, you know, that sort of explanatory style. I'm not sure if you're aware of explanatory style, but it's it's how you um, talk to yourself after a disappointment or, you know, that self-talk. So I do a lot of that with my kids, you know, always being positive, um, making sure that, you know, if they do say something where they doubt themselves, that we always sort of rectify that and change that sort of thought pattern. But secondly, um, a lot of stuff we look at in education is positive psychology um, and making sure that um, in positive psychology there's these five pillars called PERMA. It's a mnemonic called PERMA. And PERMA, P stands for positive emotion, always feeling good, you know, observing our sunsets, making sure um, we're observing the natural beauty and, and, you know, looking at all those milestones. Um, E stands for engagement, being absorbed in activity, Um, you know, that we lose sense of time. Um, I do that a lot. I love mountain bike riding. That's my sense of engagement or flow. Um, relationships, making sure we're always, you know, homework activities, we're always writing to grandparents or writing to cousins or um, just making sure we're really um, in, embracing relationships. The M stands for meaning, um, you know, just making sure we're pondering, you know, your existence, making sure that we're serving something bigger than ourselves, such as, well, I think motherhood's quite a big thing, and A, accomplishment, so, you know, setting goals, having success, those sorts of things. So I talk to my kids a lot about those sorts of things, um, but really it's just being optimistic, and that's in anything, whether it's rowing, parenthood, um, life, it's just being optimistic. Mentally strong, I guess. Paul DeGelder was on the show a couple of weeks ago and he was the Australian Navy diver who got taken by a shark in Sydney Harbour and lost a leg and an arm. Something Paul said during the interview, which is something you went through as well, Sally, I'd be interested in your perspective. He said that quite often the doctors and the physios try to slow him down. So he had the military approach and he'd been trained to take care of things. You prioritise and you execute. So what's the issue? What have I got to do? Let me go after it. And you said that there was a time where you were sitting with the physios and they said, what's your goal? And you said, I want to run. I want to water ski. I want 100% recovery, nothing less. And you said, you remember looking at them in the eye and them almost having pity for you going... Look, let's just start with some smaller goals. Let's just slow everything down. And it's almost like the Olympic mindset, to your point, was the same as the military mindset. 
Take us through that moment of the angst of you saying, look, I've got this versus medical professionals saying, slow down, you probably shouldn't do the steps you want to take. Yeah. Look, um, the five months I spent living in a rehab hospital, um, or it was four months, a month in hospital and four months in rehab, um, I was always, you treated as a victim. You know, um, the word stroke victim was used quite a lot where I was uh, living in the rehab centre. It was an elderly rehab centre for stroke victims and I wanted to change the word into stroke survivor. I wanted to get every pamphlet that was in the in the um, foyer and I wanted to change it to stroke survivor rather than stroke victim. You know, I often think when you've got a disability, you're treated as a victim. Um, but I think most of us are comfortable with being uncomfortable. You know, the doctors were really, as Paul DeGelder said, um, the doctors were slowing down my recovery. You know, they didn't understand that I was wanting to take a risk. I had to take a risk. And it's only when you take a risk that you know that you've gone too far and then you can pull yourself back. I had so many examples and so many things that happened in that rehab centre that, um, you know, made me so much stronger than I am today. Um, There was this, uh, there was, I don't even know where to start, but I guess uh, there was this point where, um, um, you know, I decided to, um, step out of the, the rehab centre um, because we were meant to stay indoors and um, just walk around with the, railed, the railing in the hallway. And I really wanted to test where I was and test when I'd be ready to go home. So um, I decided to ask if I could, leave, you know, go outside of the rehab centre. So I walked outside, um, went into the little town that was nearby, you know, hobbled in with my left leg dragging behind sort of in this funny little gate that I had as a stroke survivor and um, decided that I really wanted to go into the city, into Auckland City and have a coffee. And I thought, I'm just going to test myself. So I, you know, I walked in, it was a 400 metre walk. Um, I actually did the comb over, so I didn't have the bald head. Um, I covered my hospital bracelet. That must have been attractive. I know. (laughs) (laughs) But I was adamant that I wanted to test where my limit was. Um, The challenge was lining up for a bus at peak hour. I didn't choose my timing very well. It was peak hour. Um, I remember trying to get onto the bustling bus. Um, There were no seats available. There was a disabled seat, but there was absolutely no way I was going to ask for the disabled seat. So I can remember holding on to the, standing up in the bus, holding on with one arm, being very unstable, trying to put my money back in the pocket. And when a seat became available, I took a seat. And I can remember thinking, wow, I've done this. I've walked to a bus stop, hopped on a bus. I'm on my way to the city, about to go out for a coffee. Everything was perfect. And I could feel the net man next to me staring at me. And I thought, oh, no, my comb over. My comb over must have exposed. Or maybe my bracelet's exposed. Something's going on. Anyway, I looked down and my left arm, so my paralysed side, has um, slipped off my lap and fallen onto his briefcase. (laughs) (laughs) It was such an awkward moment. So I've just sort of reached over, grabbed my my wayward arm, thrown it back onto my lap and got off on the next stop. (laughs) So at least I found my limit and that's what it's about. It's, um, It's just about finding out how far you can go and then you can pull back. Um, and, and there were so many examples of that. It, you know, I would be up at night time in the rehab centre um, doing squats into my wheelchair. You know, I'd be visualising at night time. I would be, I would be just working, you know, I, I set up a training program that was um, visualise, eat, sleep, repeat. And I just did that over and over and over again um, and then until I finally saw progress. I want to take you back to something that you're – the, the Rowing Australia's National Talent Manager, Barnaby Eaton, said about you. He said that it was very clear that grit was required to deal with the demands and disappointments that you guys had in your sporting career, but that also helped you prepare for 
the, the medical challenges you had later in your life. Where does that grit come from, Sally? I'm always curious. It has been a theme in our show for four years or so. And I think it's such an interesting topic today and more and more people are talking about the fact that we had this lack of resilience and grit. Just to start us on that laneway for a second, where does that come from for you? Where, where do you draw that from? Look, I learned grit at a very early age um, and I've actually done some reading on Martin Seligman, the um, positive psychologist um, researcher, and it does come from well, he believes it can be built from a solid co-curricular program, you know, when kids are young, you know, things like rowing or swimming or, you know, a heavy music load while balancing schoolwork. And I have to say, when I picked up rowing in the Talent ID program when I was in year 12 and went from training, you know, running training once or twice a week to, to rowing training 12 times a week, um, the grit started developing there. You know, the coach really, really pushed a lot of self-control, self-discipline onto us. And he, he often said in order to survive, you really need to exercise self-control. And he would remind us regularly um, to sacrifice those typical teenage pleasures for that long-term gain. gain. Mm. Um, he definitely said that, you know, if you want to succeed in something, you just need to be incredibly disciplined, take action and don't get distracted. And that was reminded by reminded every single day when those distractions would come through. Um, and I guess... 15 years of that um, self-discipline, um, it's very easy then to transfer it into anything you want it to be, whether it's work, whether it's, you know, um, recovering from an injury um, or a tragedy or anything like that. So I was very, I feel very fortunate to have had that experience as a, as a teenager. You went through months in hospital, not just the operation and the treatment, but also then in rehab. And it's something we find interesting. We spoke that the whole grit resilience piece started with us interviewing a lady called Carolyn Adams Miller, who recently this year released a book called Getting Grit. And she had studied with Marty Seligman, uh, big fan of the show, Mardos, Mardos, bit of a shout out, um, and Angela Duckworth and so on. And one of, one of the things that Carolyn brought up to us, which I want to relate back to your situation is we think about grit from the military and we think about sports people and that sort of stuff or people going through natural disasters, all of whom exhibit enormous amounts of grit and resilience. Then Carolyn talked about the fact that there's a mum who might have four children working two jobs who has to pony up every morning and take care of things. And that's grit. And it made me think of, in reading your story, that your husband, John, was in the same the same situation but a different battle because when you're away he was looking after two kids who at that time were under the age of 14 months holding down a job he was a rowing coach getting the kids through meals doing the right thing at home taking care of his own mental <laughs> mental wellness you must have looked at him and gone man you know I'm going through a tough time but you must have enormous admiration for him who stood by you and just took care of stuff while you were going through your own battles yeah, you're right, actually. You know, I had a lot of visitors come into the hospital and give me flowers and I felt like saying, 
John is the hero here. I'm the one that's been taken care of in a rehab facility, being fed, given a training program. Um, I'm the one being selfish. He was the one at home trying to pay mortgages, look after our two kids. Um, He was amazing. I can remember this one time in the hospital and he was pushing me in a wheelchair and he had our two in a double pram and the pity looks that we got from people in the hospital. And I think that was a milestone for me to say there is no way I'm leaving you in this situation to look after three of us. Um, I was was pretty driven. But John was amazing, but we were very fortunate being living in New Zealand. The New Zealand community is a wonderful place and living on the school grounds, um, the parents of the school put a fridge on our front lawn and every day boys would come through, boys and girls, and deliver meals to our fridge. So John had endless supplies of food. Um, The teachers set up a roster where the kids would walk our kids in the pram to a childcare centre. So the kids were taken care of the childcare centre and the childcare centre offered us free um, childcare for 12 hours a day, five days a week. So we were very well looked after by the New Zealand community, Um, but it was a very tough time. We didn't have any family in New Zealand at that time. Um, and John just did an amazing job. But I had to be, um, I had to really make a decision to prioritise my rehab over my family. And that was a really tough decision for me, but it came from my Olympic training. Um, we, After about three months in rehab, I was allowed to go home for weekend visits. And um, I have to say, I attempted it. I attempted to go home, but I just couldn't do it. There were balloons popping, kids screaming. Um, there were no rails in the house. The shower was slippery. Um, the day I went back to rehab on the Monday morning, you couldn't get me back home. It was very, very difficult. And I guess going back home on weekends highlighted how useless I was. Um, and I was determined to get myself better before I went back home. Um, I just didn't want to be a burden on my family. I couldn't pick up a child. I couldn't change a nappy. Um, it just broke my heart going home and being a burden on my family. So my home was rehab and I was determined that I was going to, you know, eat, sleep, train, repeat um, until I was I was better and could be a mother and a wife to my family. You have got your own family and you work as a teacher. I'm always interested in hearing a teacher perform at an elite level. What do you think is the most important thing we can say to our kids? See change as an opportunity. Don't be afraid of change. I think there's so many examples out there where we're we're fearful of change um, or we see it as a threat. Um, but everything's an opportunity. Um, I'm reading Cheeria Pitt's book at the moment, A Burn Survivor. She's amazing. She's, um, she wouldn't turn back her life. She has, cre- she has created so many opportunities for herself from her tragedy. And I think we should all be seeing change um, as an opportunity and not being afraid. I think that's the one lesson I'd love to teach my children. Is there anything Sally fears today? I think I'm like everybody. I still have self-doubt. Um, I still do a lot of self-talk. I still, um, when I'm working enormous hours, um, I still need a little bit of um, sort of meditation, um, positive um, thoughts around me. Um, I don't think there's anything I fear. I think I've I've received my curveball in life and I think I've... Um, manage that reasonably well and I feel ready for another curveball if one ever hits me. Mm. Yeah, I feel, yeah, pretty positive about life ahead. You've spent, let's say, thousands of hours putting yourself through goodness knows what sort of struggle, hurt, pain, all with the view. Even when you're a kid, knowing that everything you were going through was aimed at Olympic gold, to get to a final in itself is an enormous achievement. 
However, many go, if I don't walk away with a medal, then I didn't do what I set out to do. How do you reconcile that period of your life now, Sally? When you reflect back with all you've been through, with your medical challenges, family, the joy you see as a teacher, which is part of your passion, how do you reconcile that period now of going through the Olympics but not walking away with the thing that most people believe Olympia needs to walk away with? Yeah, good question. I think uh, finishing the Games... um you know, you know, Drew, Drew Jin is a great friend of mine and enormous amount of medals. You do feel like, you, not you missed out because obviously Drew is an incredible athlete, but you feel like in those ticker tape parades where every child wants your autograph and then once you tell them that you didn't receive a medal, the look on their face, they seem so disappointed in you. It has been difficult, you know, three Olympics and nothing to bring home but a world record. Um, and I felt, I felt pretty sad for a while about that, but I think... As life goes on, you realise those skills actually weren't about winning Olympic medals. I look back now and I think every kilometre I did on the water was not about Olympic medals or record, records. It was about coping with the curveballs that came in my direction afterwards. Um, I feel like there was so much more to it than Olympic medals. So I feel actually like it was a fantastic journey and now it set me up for anything I want to do. Um, and I guess I used to feel um, quite proud to be a triple Olympian, but now I feel a lot prouder that I'm a stroke survivor because that took, you know, so much more effort to get through surviving a stroke than uh, three Olympic Games. So everything gets into perspective, I think, as you get older. Can I just dive into your head for one second? Because you've said this a couple of times now and it intrigues me. You went to three Olympics and you didn't come home with a medal, but you did come home with a world record. And a couple of times you said, all I came home with was a world record. And for a lot of us, that would be <laughs> like enough. <laughs> like for a lot of us, average humans. Is that, does that, is that just a reflection of your disappointment? Or, or, or where, does that, where does that wording come from? Yeah, it's definitely. You know, you spend, um, you know, my first Australian team was 1993. My last one was 2004. So that's quite a long innings on the Australian team. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I guess the whole focus in that period of time was an Olympic medal. That was the whole focus. And it took a very long time to accept that I'd come forth again. You know, it, it really broke my heart. Um, and especially when we were primed to stand on the podium that year, if it wasn't for my broken rib on a mountain bike and Amber getting hit by a car on her bike. So, but as I said, now, 10, 20 years later, you know, I'm very proud and I actually am more proud to be a stroke survivor um, and use those skills actually in, in, a, in a fantastic way, use those Olympic skills outside of the boat. I think it's fair to say that uh, we've mentioned Drew Ginn, who is a multiple gold medal winner at the Olympics. Uh, he was a guest on the show and I think, Sally, I know you're a friend, if you spoke to Drew, he would openly and honestly say that his career highlight was being on our show and the soap <laughs> on a rope uh, in, in his medal cabinet, the soap <laughs> on a rope is uh, uh, for him emotionally and achievement-wise means a lot more to him than his gold and world records or whatever else you want and all the other tin. Uh, he, so, like, I think, I, think, I think you've earned a soap and a rope. I'm just saying that uh, <laughs> world records yeah. aside, uh, after all you've been through, I think you, you, above anybody else, deserve a soap and a rope for the Mojo Radio Show. Thank you. It's a Mojo Radio Show gold medal. Thank you, Robbo and Gary. I want to get some gold devil's horns made. As a soap. Well, hang on. I'm just going to turn my camera on here. Can you see that, Sally? No, I can't. 
Just as well, he's, he's in track. He's in track, Dax, in a Divinals T-shirt, which is way too small. Looks more like a boob I tube. I'm glad I'm not seeing that. <laughs> and you know what, Sally, there are some things you can't unsee. Oh, I've got my ACDC horns out for you, but, you know, you can't see them. I've just got one final question, uh, Sally, on a serious note, if there's ever such a thing on this show. Uh, you said very uh, early on in, this, in the interview, you talked about training the mental side uh, when you're performing. Today, it sounds like you're still a great learner. You still like to read. How do you train your mental side today as a mum, school teacher, as a person in our society? Are you still training yourself? What do you go through on a daily basis? Do you have routines or rituals for your mental well-being today? Um, Look, my... um my work life, I do uh, six months of the year, that, that's about 80 hours, 80 hours a week, another six months, 20 hours a week. And I find those 20 hours a week where I work for six months, I'm high as a kite and walking on the clouds. But when I'm working 80 hours a week, I really do need to um, do a little bit of meditation, um, really practice some positive, I guess, self-talk because I think when we're all fatigued and tired, we can get pretty down on ourselves. So I definitely do. I'm really aware um, of my self-talk and my explanatory style. I really make an effort um, to be as positive as I can, especially when I'm incredibly fatigued, coaching morning and night and um, working during the day. So, yeah, I, ca- I carry what I've learned through my Olympic training into my everyday life because I think it's really important um, to be the best you can be. Well, I've got to say, Glenn Capelli introduced us. Uh, thanks, Cap. He's been a regular guest on our show and a top bloke. And I've got to say, Sally, going through the materials that I had read and seen about you and talking to you today, you're a great Australian. You've just got a great story, beautiful attitude, and uh, we're very, very grateful for your time and your sharing, your willingness to be open and honest about what you've been through, Sally. So, um, so thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And don't ever discourage the comb over because, you know, Gary and I can't even manage that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm growing a mule over Christmas. That's what I'm going to grow, a mule. A mule over right over. The Mojo Radio Show. We don't take ourselves too seriously. Oh, thank God. What a lovely, lovely lady. Do you know, we have spoken a lot about resilience and grit and we've spoken to sports people and people who've been through hardships in life. I think that's a really profound show for just demonstrating that although we look at these sports people and people who've done enormous feats like climbing mountains and stuff, we think it's specifically just for doing that. But then the skills are transferable across to somebody who's fighting for their life against a debilitating disease Mm. or someone who's holding down three jobs just to pay for the food bill for the week ahead. I I really enjoy talking to Sally, such a down-to-earth. She's a school teacher, so she's able to then take that and (laughs) give it to the kids as well. So she's an all-round good person. That probably helped her keep us under control as well. (laughs) Yeah, well... Now, uh, before we close out, as they say in the radio business, uh, what have you found for us today? Well, you know what? We haven't done for a long, long time. We haven't done a what were they thinking. You think it, but how often do you say it? What were they thinking? I've got a classic what were they thinking this week, and it it does directly affect me. I'm going to put a caveat on that right now, but... I saw something on the news this morning that stopped me in my tracks. Now, Sydney trains have been in chaos for the last couple of weeks, mainly because Sydney Rail decided that they were going to do major track work, not during the Christmas holidays, which everyone would think might happen, 
but they've decided to do it just as the uh, just as the new year starts and everyone's heading back to work. Plus, to compound the problem, they gave too many of their drivers holidays and have left themselves short. So, after two weeks of chaos on our rails, I was sitting in front of the news this morning eating my Wheaties, and the head of Sydney Rail came on and was talking about how they were going to cope with what will today be one of the busiest days of the year with the most people going back to work. I was intrigued by what he said. Two things stood out and I've recorded them. Just have a listen. This is the first one. You know, it's no good uh, someone turning up and not knowing what's happening. So even though there's no real timetable and trains are just coming and going whenever they can, please turn up and know what time your train is. Is it just me or does that not make sense? No, it doesn't make sense. It also reeks of, well... We're not going to take responsibility. You take responsibility. You turn up and you should know what's going on. We're not going to tell you what's going on, but you should know. Like, <laughs> honestly. I know. And here he comes the clangor, though. We're out there telling people, you know, this will go to plan. If it doesn't, these are your alternatives. Thoughts? <laughs> yeah, it should, it should work. <laughs> should or will. No, no, it should. We're pretty sure, but... Just in case, it's the great story of Winston Marsalis. Yeah. When his mum said, well, if you want to be a musician, a famous musician, then you should have a fallback plan. <laughs> but when he went to his dad and his dad said, I want to be a musician, and mum said, great, but I should have a fallback plan, Winston Marsalis' dad said, if you've got a fallback plan, it means you're planning to fall back. <laughs> yeah, <say>. right. <laughs> we think it's going to work, but just in case it doesn't, which means... It ain't gonna work. It's not gonna work. Anyway, I just I knew you'd get a laugh out of that, so I had to talk to you about it. The Mojo Radio Show. Simmer down, you noisy screaming thing. To take us out this week, we've got a piece, a grab, and a song. And this comes from a lady called Lisa Nichols. And if you haven't if you haven't come across Lisa Nichols before, have a look online because she does just beautiful work. She's straight up and for those of us who aren't familiar with Lisa, she's one of the world's most recognised motivational speakers and a media personality, in addition to being the CEO of a global platform that has served more than 30 million people. What's really curious about Lisa's story is she was a really struggling mum, and I'm talking seriously struggling mum, living on public assistance, and now she's a multi-millionaire entrepreneur. The business that Lisa runs is called Motivating the Masses, Inc. And just recently, she launched her seventh book called Abundance Now. Without saying too much, have a listen to Lisa talk about her journey. This was an interview recorded on Impact Theory. And once you've heard the interview, you'll hear Lisa sing a song that she used to sing to herself as a way of motivating herself to get through the dark times that keep pushing forward. You can get caught up by reading your own fine print. See, whenever I hear people reading my bio, and before I came on and you read my bio, I'm in the back going, yeah, 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 yeah. Because I don't want to ever think I arrived. I don't ever, that bio was old. I, I, you should be interested in my future. Oh, that's my bio. What's my future? Oh, what are you doing? What am I? Who am I becoming for 2020? And we get caught up in our bios. We get caught up in our status. I never allowed that to stop me from going and sitting at the hem of someone and saying, what do you know about wealth? See, because there's three forms to money. There's three relationships to money. We learn how to earn it. We learn how to keep it. And we learn how to grow it. Well, I, I learned how to earn it because my theme song was, I'm a hustler, baby, and I want you to know, everybody with me, it ain't where I've been, but what? Where I'm about to go. 
So I was singing that song. <laughs> That's good. They know. Yeah. They know, right? I was singing that song when I was I was in working out of my closet as my office. I, w- I was in a walk-in closet where you really couldn't walk in. You stepped in and turned, right? <laughs> and 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 the clothes rack. You know how you have the hanger rack. I had pant hangers in the closet, and I had Manila folders clipping on the, the pant hangers. Those are my client files. And I would sit there, and I put two ninety-nine mirrors off that you get from CVS. I put them all around my closet walls so that I can make my my office look bigger. I worked out of that closet office for four years, singing that song. It ain't where I've been, but where I'm about to go. It's a song by Jay-Z. We're going to go out with that. And just remember, as Lisa said, it ain't where you've been, it's where you're about to go. So we say, go get him. Controversial. Jay-Z on the Mojo <laughs> Radio Show. <laughs> We're out. I'm just proud of y'all going to have over there. I'm going to turn around. Party, party, party. I'm a hustler, baby. Hustler. I just want you to know. It ain't where I've been. Oh, where I'm oh. about to go Top of the world I just wanna love ya just wanna love But you. be who I am you Know you love me And with oh. all this cash oh. money, Don't forget your man Now give it to me Give me that funk that Wait a minute, I shouldn't be so hot on that boy Hey baby, come here when the Remy's in the system, ain't no telling when I'm fucking, will I diss them? That's what they be yelling, I'm a pimp by blood, not relation. Y'all be chasing, I'll be placed dumb, huh? Drunk on Chris, mommy on E. Can't keep a little model hands off me. Both in the club, singing on key. And I wish I never met her at all. It gets better, ordered another round It's about to go down Got six model chicks, six bottles of Chris Four velvet ass got everywhere What do you say, me, you and your Chloe glasses uh-huh. Go somewhere private where we could discuss fashion Like Prada blouse, Gucci bra Okay, feel my jeans, take that off Give it to me Give me that funk, that sweet, that nasty, that gushy stuff But don't foolish me Come on, give me that funk, that sweet, that nasty, that gushy stuff Give it to me Give me that funk, that sweet, that nasty, that gushy stuff But don't foolish me Mama, give me that funk, that sweet, that nasty, that gushy stuff Yeah, save the narrative, you saving it for marriage Let's keep it real, man, you saving it for carriage You wanna see how far I'ma go, how much I'ma spend, but you already know Zip zero, stingy with the Nero. Might buy you crisp, but that about it. Might light your wrist, but that about it. I might wipe you and buy your nice whips, mom, but you really gotta ride nice. Know how to work your hips and your hands priceless. Confess you love the hove and I never let you down. Get you bling like the Neptune sound. Okay, hot hold, too hot to hold. Ladies love me long time like two pops old. Only way to roll, jiggering two ladies, I'm too cold. Motorola, two way page. Come on, give it to me. Give me that funk, that sweet, that nasty, that gushy stuff. But don't foolish me. Come on, give me that funk, that sweet, that nasty, that gushy stuff. So give it to me. Give me that funk, that sweet, that nasty, that gushy stuff. But don't foolish me. Mama, give me that funk, that sweet, that nasty, that gushy stuff. I'm a hustler, baby. Oh. I just want you to know. Oh. It ain't where I've been. Oh. But where I'm about to go. Oh. Oh. Now I just want to love you. But be who I am And with all this cash You'll forget your man Hey baby, don't y'all know me? I'm Will Smith, Jackie Robinson, Jay-Z Same song, I'm back Been around the world Manson girls that dance with girls From 
Club Cheetah, the club amnesia, the peanuts in LA, bubbling and doublings, can't deny me. Why would you want to? You need me. Why don't you try me? Baby, you want to? Believe me. Give it to me. Give me that funk, that sweet, that nasty, that gushy stuff. But don't bullish me. Come on. Give me that funk, that sweet, that nasty, that gushy stuff. So give it to me. Give me that funk, that sweet, that nasty, that gushy stuff. But don't bullish me. Mama, give me that funk, that sweet, that nasty, that gushy stuff. Give it to me. The Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.